Do you strive for unity in God's church? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's so obvious that this is the point of our passage this morning, isn't it? So I figured I might as well just ask that question right out of the gate. Are you naturally someone who tries to hold people together? Or are you more inclined to be schismatic and, you know, try and create divisions and try and divide the church up into lots of different parties? For some people, like Francis Chan, this desire to keep the church united has uh, led him to being pulled by the rationale of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, so he has had many conversations with a man named Hank Hanegraaff, who several years ago uh, walked away from Protestant Christianity and uh, joined the Eastern Orthodox Church. And he was swayed considerably by uh, Hank's rationale, which, is, which was that uh, the Eucharist and the real presence of Christ, uh, which is in it, is what should bring Christians together. And he also uh, makes the argument, argument that the institution of the historical Eastern Orthodox Church uh, and the interpretations that the early church fathers of that church give of Scripture uh, help create a unifying uh, force for the church. And so, therefore, uh, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church does it better because we can, they can point to and they can look at all of those things to say, that's how we unite. Roman Catholics say similar things. They'll say that the Pope and the, the Church holds the authority to be able to interpret Scripture in such a way that we can all agree and be united. But that raises a whole bunch of other questions, doesn't it? I mean, how do we achieve unity? Uh, if you have any Roman Catholic friends, if you have a conversation with them, you'll realize that they're just as divided on different issues as plenty of other Christians are. If God's church is meant to be united, why are there so many denominations as, as Protestants? Why do we have Anglicans and Baptists and, and uniting churches and all of these other types? And, and if we're to unite, well, what does that look like and how do we un, what do we unite on? What does that mean? Well, our passage speaks to these questions, and I hope that by the end of our sermon, we will have answered those. This passage actually serves as the first section, verses 10 to 17, of, uh, of, a, of a broader and a longer section that Paul goes on to then talk about, uh, right through to the end of chapter 4. It's, it's part of this whole big section. And so as we, preach over, as we preach through all of these different sections over the next few weeks, uh, be reminded that this is all part of the one same integrated whole. And Paul is addressing the same, the same thread that runs along through it. And this whole theme of unity, uh, as you'll see, is uh, perhaps, um, and perhaps as you may have noticed, if you've read uh, 1 Corinthians, is one of, if not the main theme that Paul is concerned about as he talks about all the different issues throughout the Corinthian church. As you, as you read through the book, you'll see this, this thread continuing to come back of Paul desiring unity in the local church. And so it's a very important point and a good one for us to grasp here at the beginning of our, our series, our second week in 1 Corinthians. And uh, speaking of important points, I have five of them. Uh, this morning, and the third of which will be the longest, so uh, you don't need to freak out when you think we've only got like 10 minutes left and I'm still only on point three. Uh, 
So as we strive and as we think about as we strive for unity in God's church this morning, uh, we need to remember five things. The first is the church is built on Jesus. The church is built on Jesus. I remember as we saw last week uh, that Paul, uh, he's just thanked God for the grace that he has worked in the lives of these Corinthians. Uh, and we, we talked about how incredible it is that Paul does that. And with that foundation in place, he now pivots immediately from that to one of the biggest causes of the church's problems, which, of course, we'll get to. Uh, but what does he immediately say in this section, right at the beginning, in verse 10? He says, I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you. He appeals to them, which means he, he urges them. And what follows it uh, is going to be something that Paul really wants the Corinthians to grasp. This is, he's about to say something that he really wants them to change in their lives. And now, for those who are my age and older, I imagine you might have read that passage and didn't even bat an eyelid. I appeal to you, brothers. Uh, but if you're younger than me, then it's possible that you hear that and you think, gee, that's a bit sexist, isn't it? That Paul would only address the brothers and not the sisters? Well, uh, for those of you who are younger than me, there was likely never a time in your life uh, where it was okay and common for the plural masculine nouns to be used to refer to everybody, or even singular ones sometimes. Uh, when, when, you know, believe it or not, it was only a couple of decades ago where you could say something like that, or brothers or men, and, and people would not think, they're not addressing the women, but that actually they were addressing everybody. And that was certainly commonplace in Paul's time. And so uh, here, when he says brothers, he's actually not just referring to the men in the congregation. Uh, the, the original word that he uses is just brothers, uh, and our translation here has translated it uh, in the ESV by using just that word, whereas other translations will give you the sense of it, and they'll say brothers and sisters. And so the point is, I, I point that out because uh, we need to remember that Paul is not here just talking about the men in the congregation. He's talking about everybody, everyone in the church. He's appealing to all of them. And so this next uh, main bit uh, is where we get the, the point of our first point. The church is built on Jesus. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we noticed in the opening passage last week how much Paul talks about and anchors his encouragement in Jesus. Nine times he talks about Jesus and, and doing these things in his name. Well, he continues that right here in this next section by anchoring his appeal by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is vital for us to grasp because it tells us that everything else that he says in this passage is all about Jesus. It is all founded on the name of Jesus. The church is built on Jesus. And you can't have unity any other way. This appeal by Jesus' name is a signal from Paul that this is the point that he is going to make and keep talking about for the next few chapters. That Christ is our foundation. Keep that in mind as we work our way through this passage, as we work our way through the next points. The next of which is, the church is divided by men. The church is divided by men. 
So what's Paul appealing to by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's take a look here in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, that all, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, some commentators have suggested uh, that Paul is using here what's called a chiasm. If you're taking notes, that is spelt C-H-I-A-S-M, chiasm. Uh, and what a chiasm is, is where the first and the last parts of the section are making similar points with the middle point being the climax or the main point of that passage. So as you can see here, this is what you, how you would write it out, what it looks like, that all of you agree, and then the middle section, and that there be no divisions among you, and then after that, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You see how those two A sections there correspond to one another. And then that middle section uh, is, is saying the same thing, but amplified in a different way. And so that means that uh, Paul is saying that one way to define what it means to be agreed and, and to have the same mind and the same judgment, that positive appeal can be more clearly defined by the negative appeal, that there be no divisions among you. And this makes sense, because if you were to take this sentence at face value, I'm sure you would read it, much, I'm sure I wouldn't be the only one, who'd be thinking, hmm, that all of you agree. Yeah, good luck with that one. In order to make everybody agree on everything, you either have to uh, deny that there are any disagreements and just say, no, 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 we're all good, it's all fine. No, yeah, we agree on everything, it's all good, you know, it's great. Or you'd have to force everybody to then think the same things and that has not gone well in history. I'm sure you can see that both of those options might achieve some kind of appearance of unity, but ultimately, it doesn't unite people at the deepest level. It certainly doesn't unite the church at the deepest level. Paul would even say later on in chapter 8, he, he would talk about how Christians and how the church ought to deal with disagreements that they have. So clearly he's not suggesting that you, you know, we all have to have the, the same mind and wear the same clothes and you know, never disagree on anything. And so if that's not what Paul's saying, then, then what does he actually mean then by this sentence? Well, let's continue reading and then we'll actually circle back to it to this so that we can understand it better. Have a look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Uh, now, you might have a better grasp of the English language than me, uh, but when I read the word quarreling, uh, I did not think of something particularly serious. In my mind, quarrelling uh, is, is like a British word that happens when you're having a cup of tea together and then you sort of have a little bit of a disagreement on something. You know, that, that's what I picture quarrelling to be. Turns out I am wrong and the, uh, the dictionary <laughs> made it clear to me that uh, that's not what is going on here. Quarrelling actually refers to a, a heated, a rather heated argument about something. And in fact, Paul uses the same word here that he does in 1 Corinthians 1 uh, and other similar ones to describe how serious being quarrelsome actually is. And so in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, where Paul writes a list of very serious and significant sins, some of which I'm sure you would look at and think, oh yeah, that's, 
that is serious. Some of them would stand out and you think, yeah, that's, that's a bad sin. Well, Paul includes in this list, in the midst of it right here, the very word that we have in our passage. It's translated here as strife and quarreling in our passage. But you can see even a few words later that Paul uses other similar words to describe the same kind of situation. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. And quarreling here means much more than just a little disagreement. And that's, I mean, even clear from the context as well, from the context of our passage that we've, we've read. Quarreling with the, the quarreling that was going on in the Corinthian church was obviously big and bad enough that Chloe's people actually came and told Paul about it in a completely different city. You know, it was so bad uh, that not only did they know about it, but they thought it was serious enough to actually tell Paul about it. That's because of what Paul says next. Each one of you, he says, claims to be a disciple of one of these great teachers. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. And here we're introduced to the problem that Paul will elaborate on further in this broader section of the first four chapters. As you see, the core issue in the Corinthian church wasn't heretical theology. It wasn't beliefs that were... Um, antithetical to the Christian faith. If it was, how could Paul possibly affirm their faith as he did in, at the start of the letter? You'll, and all you have to do is just read through Galatians to see that when it is a matter of, of heretical belief, Paul is not afraid to call that out and to say, if you've walked away from the gospel, he will make that point. And so, no, the issue here was that some in the church were aligning themselves with these certain teachers. You know, they were saying, uh, this, this is our guy. He's the superior one. I'm part of the, I'm part of the Paul gang. They were saying that he, he was far superior to the others. And then there were others who were saying that they were part of the Apollos gang, who, you know, as we read in Acts chapter 18, was an eloquent man and who, was, who knew the Scriptures very well. So he was obviously a very gifted teacher. And then there was Cephas, also known as Peter, who was, of course, one of Jesus' main disciples, one of the apostles. And then there, was, there were others who would claim, perhaps a little bit self-righteously, well, I follow Christ. And this, of course, is the right thing to do. Christians are supposed to follow Christ, but likely they were doing it with the same kind of attitude as the others who are saying these things about these other churches. And that's why Paul brings it up. Because claiming it in that way, as though you are superior to others, is what makes it bad. And so you see, the problem uh, was not necessarily and, and was actually unlikely to be what they were actually teaching. As a matter of fact, when you read through 1 Corinthians, uh, it doesn't seem like Paul wants to address any theological issues that... that Peter or Apollos might have been teaching the Corinthians. He's not doing that. He doesn't do that. What you actually see is, is there is a good relationship between Paul and Apollos. And Paul, as we know from Galatians 2, was certainly not afraid of confronting the other apostles when they got something wrong. It says clearly he opposes Peter to his face. <laughs> so that's not what Paul is trying to do here. He's not, that's not the issue he's addressing. No, the issue wasn't theological controversy. And so in order to understand what's going on here, the historical background will help. The context of this schism 
And these guys trying to claim that I follow whoever was the culture of the Corinthians at the time. You see, they had these rock star public speakers or orators, as they were known. It was a thing. It's hard for us to believe because we have TVs and movies and whatnot. But people would go to hear these really uh, very smooth-spoken, very brilliant teachers, and they would listen to them talk and orate with their brilliant oratory skills. And the masses would then latch onto their favorites. That was part, this was part of the Corinthian culture. These days, I think the equivalent of, of what you'd find would probably be fanboys, you know, or queens, or Swifties. It's probably what you'd, you know, that would be the equivalent of, of these guys back then, of that sort of culture. You know the ones, they're the, you know, they're the diehard fans. They're the ones who will defend their favorite celebrity no matter what it is they do. They'll come out on social media with gloves on, ready to go. There was, yeah, anyway, I'm not going to talk about famous stouches between fans. <laughs> but not only will they do that, they will, you know, they'll, they'll bad mouth and tear down the opposition. They don't just talk about how great their favorite celebrity is, but they talk about how bad the other celebrity is. And that's exactly, apparently, what was going on here in Corinth and here in the Corinthian church. They were talking up their favorite orator and they were delighting in that orator's superiority over the lesser orators. And they would lampoon them and say, follower of Paul, ha, he's not eloquent. And so these kinds of factions and these divisions that Paul it's this kind of thing that Paul is appealing to the Corinthians to stop. Stop doing that. And now this is really important for us to grasp because often we read a passage like this, we read something that in, in Scripture, and we read 1 Corinthians, and it's talking about unity, and we readily and we hastily think that it applies immediately to our situation today in the same kind, in, in the kind of way that we think. What I mean is that, you know, we look today at the multiplicity of denominations. We look at Protestant churches and we see how they've all fractured in many different ways over different issues and we see them and, and, and we think, gosh, that's just theological hair-splitting. Why would you do that? And we think, you know, we look at this passage and we say, see, this is, it's, that's not how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to have all of those different kinds of denominations. Now, I'm not suggesting that that isn't a real issue. It's not something that we should address and should seek to do better in. But we need to be careful not to read into this text something that isn't there. Because the main issue that Paul is addressing in these verses is the fact that the Corinthian church is divided by men. They are boasting in their favorite teachers. And that's a warning we ought to heed, isn't it? How often do you find yourself uh, quoting what your favorite teacher says rather than what the Bible says? How easy is it for us to say, I follow Matt Chandler, or I follow John Piper, or I follow Tim Keller? I know that's certainly a temptation for me. Brothers and sisters, we must not replace the word with the good teachings of learned teachers. 
We must not replace the Word with the good teachings of learned teachers. We can benefit from them, we can thank God for them, and wherever they help us to understand the Word more clearly, we can even agree with them. Even, you know, where we think that they express biblical truth in a book, we can even give that book out. That's okay. But we must never, ever elevate them to the point where we will just take whatever they say as gospel. Never. And we certainly mustn't divide a church over the teachings or the personality of one such teacher. This is exactly the problem with the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. They've decided that the interpretations of certain men, whether men uh, currently or men from, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, carry authoritative weight. This is a huge mistake that they make. Don't be fooled, regardless of which man's writings or teachings you think are authoritative, even if the people who are teaching are ones who actually knew the Gospels, if it's not in Scripture, it is not inspired by God. And no, the church did not give us Scripture. It recognized Scripture. And so that's why our sole authority is the word that God has given us, not the interpretations of men. Let us be constantly turning to the word for God's truth and his guidance. Because when we do that, we realize that we only have one authority that we can go to, one court of appeal. And when we do that, we can't appeal to Bill Hybels or Rick Warren or Mark Dever about what we should do with church or anything else. We should only ever be interested in what any person has to say, including me, insofar as it is faithful to the word and true to the gospel. Which brings us to our next point, the centerpiece of what Paul is saying in this passage. The church is united in Christ. The church is united in Christ. Let's take a look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? These are, of course, rhetorical questions. They're questions where the answer to the question is implied in the way the question is asked. Do I know what rhetorical means? Paul asks these questions. Clearly, the answer is no. Christ isn't divided. Paul wasn't crucified for you and you weren't baptized in the name of Paul. The core of what Paul is getting at here is that there is one person upon whom the church is built and it's not the Pope and it's not Paul. It's Jesus. And because it's his church, Paul emphasizes that he is one. He is unified. Jesus identifies so closely with his church uh, that when he first appears to Paul, back when his name was Saul, in Acts uh, chapter 9, where Paul was persecuting the church and Jesus appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You notice that? Paul is persecuting the church and Jesus tells him that he is persecuting him. 
And that's why Paul can say, is Christ divided? And Paul, of course, would then go on to talk about the church in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians as a body. Is Christ divided? Of course not. The church is united in Him. And you can't build it on anything else. Paul or anyone else wasn't crucified for you. Paul or anyone else did not, uh, you weren't baptized into His name. And to believe so and to worship someone in that matter is idolatry. That would be to venerate and to glorify somebody other than God. To build the church on something other than Christ, whether it's the personality of the lead pastor or whether it's the traditions of the historical church or whether it's the latest church growth strategies, whether it's a, a message that gets close to the gospel but actually isn't the gospel, whether it's on spiritual experiences or whether it's on signs, miracles and wonders, whether it's on a set of teaching and ideas that are based on the wisdom of this world. If the church is built on any of that or anything else that is not Christ, then at best you are setting up the church for significant problems and divisions and at worst it is not a church at all. And so we need to commit to being consistently, constantly and confidently clear about Christ. Because if we're not, we open ourselves up to, firstly, false teachers, and secondly, division. As you might imagine, this is something that I've given a fair amount of thought to over the last couple of years. And whilst uh, in my immaturity and in my own sin, I would have in days past not been as zealous for the unity of the church. And I've come to realize that this is a mark of a growing and a mature believer to desire and to work towards unity in the church. But in addition to this, I've also realized that when we talk about unity in the church, we need to be exceptionally clear about what we mean and what it's built on. Because much like other words that are often thrown around in evangelical Christianity today, we sometimes use a biblical word and attach to it an unbiblical definition. And most often we do this with words that, you know, that just seem so self-evident in terms of what they mean. Now, for example, I, I can't tell you how many times I have uh, read about or heard about people who have walked away from the Christian faith or who have warped and changed the Christian faith to make it look nothing like what the Bible actually presents because they have defined the word love in a way that is exactly the same as everybody else in the world. It happens all the time with many words and I think this word unity here is another classic example. After all, we all know what unity is, right? We've watched the world's most powerful nation destroy itself because of its divisions. So much so that Joe Biden, the president-elect, in his, in his victory speech and in his Thanksgiving speech just a few days ago, both times called for unity in the nation. I mean, it's so clear, isn't it, that disunity destroys things. Can't we all just work to 
for the common good? Isn't it so obvious that the way you achieve unity is to just make sure we, we do the, you know, the, get the basic stuff and then oh, not argue about everything else, just forget all that other stuff. It just gets in the way. So goes the thinking of the world. And then Christians who are usually well-intended, they grab hold of this definition of unity and they apply it to the church. That's precisely why many different movements over the last couple of centuries have popped up to try and address this, to try and have uh, some kind of denominational institutional unity. That's the Uniting Church in Australia is, is one good example that was begun in the 20th century with that attempt, several different denominations coming together. Now, I certainly love and I admire the heart of these movements. But history has shown that they have largely been a tragic failure. And the main reason is because, ironically, they've tried to build the church on something other than Jesus. They've tried to lay a foundation that is different to Jesus, which is unity. They've tried to build the church on unity rather than on Jesus. And when you try to do that, when you try to build the church on some kind of visible or institutional unity above all else, then that is a foundation that is going to fail. As soon as you say that that's the highest priority and that, you know, what we should do is just put our differences aside and we just got to agree on this kind of hazy, nebulous definition of Christ and of what a Christian is. You know, as long as you've got a cross on your church or on your church building or your letterhead or on your volunteer shirts, then we're good. You know, let's just, let's just, that's basic and then let's not worry about anything else. The moment you lay that as the cornerstone of your church, then you are basically flinging the gates open and welcoming in the wolves. As 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, reminds us, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. When you say that that's the highest priority, then the way our world interprets that is that you shouldn't ask any hard questions about what exactly we're uniting on. By the way, one of the biggest problems here is in how we define what a church actually is. The Bible uses the term church to refer to both the universal church, which is every believer in every place around the world, and it also uses it to refer to, to, refer to the local church, which is a group of Christians who have united together, who have committed to one another, and who meet regularly to spur one another on in their faith. That's what we do here at Emmaus Road. We have committed to one another to do this. We are a local church. And by far, the most common use of the word church in the New Testament is this latter definition of local church. Whole denominations, they are not one big church because whole denominations don't gather in one place. They are collections of local churches who've decided to cooperate together. And the point is, whilst it's an awesome thing for us that we can uh, count brothers and sisters on the other side of the world as part of the universal church, that's something we should celebrate and rejoice in. 
We need to realize that the primary context that God has given us when we labor for unity and agreement, for there to be no divisions among us and for us to be united in the same mind and the same judgment, the primary place that God wants us to do that that is in His local church. Don't lament the many denominations of the world if you haven't labored for unity in your own local church. Friend, are you committed to a local church? Do you strive for unity amongst those brothers and sisters? How do you do that? Well, you do it by agitating for unity in Christ. Right here, in your local church. By pressing your fellow members and elders to ensure that we are clear on the gospel and that we are teaching the word of Christ. You do it by spurring your brothers and sisters on. You do it by spending time with them by encouraging them to keep going deeper into the Word, to press into knowing Jesus, to spending time with Him in prayer. You do it by getting to know members that you don't naturally get along with. You do it by spending time, quality time, with people who are not your natural demographic, but are in your church. You do it by showing grace and love to those that you find annoying and difficult. Look around. Look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and push on toward unity with one another. This is the first and most important group of people you ought to be seeking unity with. And if you're not doing that, don't even bother trying to establish unity in other churches and organizations. Because if you're not doing that, then you're missing the, the first and most important group that you should be putting all of your effort into, or at least most of it. Now, does this mean that we can't unite with other Christians? Does this mean that we can't work towards and strive towards that kind of unity? Of course not. Wherever somebody has truly repented and whenever they have truly turned from their sin and put their faith and trust in Christ, there is a brother or sister in Jesus. There is somebody that we share who is part of the universal body of Christ. And that's why we seek to maintain unity as far as possible with as many churches who preach the same gospel as we do. That's exactly why I've had several lunches and coffees with with other brothers in Darwin from other churches who aren't part of our church but who preach the same Christ. And I know they do because we've talked about it and because we've clarified exactly what we believe about what we believe Scripture teaches and who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And we've committed to support and pray for one another. It's the reason why I emailed as many pastors in Darwin as I had email addresses for when I first came back to Darwin. 
to invite them to come and talk to us as, as we prepared to plant Emmaus Road, to ask any questions that they might have. It's why if we love our brothers and sisters, wherever they are, whatever church, they, local church they might be a, a part of, if we love them, we should always, always desire for them to have the same mind and the same judgment and to agree with us. And yes, we need to do that lovingly, tactfully, and winsomely. And we need to consider carefully how important some matters of faith are. But if we love the Lord, our desire should always be to see every brother or sister in Christ come to a clearer and a better understanding of Him by His Word. And our hope should be that they desire the same thing for us. And will take us to the word so that we may agree in Christ about what he has revealed to us and what he continues to teach us through his word. Far from being something where we should shy away from difficult conversations or minimize disagreements, true unity and true agreement in Christ calls us to keep going deeper and to keep even being even clearer about Christ. Because it's only when we grasp this ourselves that we can really understand and know and unite deeply with our brothers and sisters. That's actually why we at Emmaus Road have a statement of faith. Because we want to be clear about what we believe and talk about it and to be able to encourage others to search the Scriptures to know His truth. Do you pray for unity in our church? Do you pray for unity between us and other churches in Darwin? Do you pray for churches in Darwin to be built on Christ so that we may be united together with them in Him? Do you pray that people and churches who profess to be Christians but confess a false gospel would come to a saving faith in Him? You see, Paul can appeal to the Corinthians to agree and to be united in the same mind and the same judgment because that unity is built on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Is Christ divided? No. He is one body. The church must be united in Him. And that alone will keep us from division. That leads us to our fourth point. The church is divided by baptism. Now you might think I'm about to start talking about why it's necessary for us as Baptists to be divided from Presbyterians because they baptize infants. I actually do think that's a necessary division. But, and I should also emphasize that where such churches who believe such things preach the gospel, I am just more than happy to unite with them. I'll happily talk about that another time, but really this point, 
uh, is actually here to explain the next few verses. Let's look at verses 14 to 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. I love this uh, interesting little aside that Paul takes, uh, which was obviously, must have been triggered by his previous sentence when he talked about how you're not baptized in the name of Paul. And then, oh, here he goes. Oh, that's right. And it's clear that the point that he's making when he says this is that he only baptized these guys, these three, including the household of Stephanus. And he's thankful that in God's sovereignty, he didn't baptize a larger amount of people in the Corinthian church, because had he done that, that they could have been used that as their, yeah, well, I was baptized by Paul. Yeah. And if people were boasting in this, well, it simply would have been an outworking of the issues that Paul has already been talking about, isn't it? It's an outworking of the fact that they are saying, I follow this person. So Paul is being clear here that baptism is not what saves you. Especially if it's done in the name of one of his servants. It must be done in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit as Jesus commanded us in Matthew 28. We follow one God and there is one Lord, one faith and one baptism. We know that Paul is saying that baptism doesn't save you because of what he says next. And that leads us to our final point this morning. The church is built to preach the gospel. The church is built to preach the gospel. What does our last verse say in this passage? Let's look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now let's uh, get the first point out of the way. Is Paul saying that baptism is unimportant? Is he suggesting that it's not part of what we're supposed to do that certainly if you just take that sentence that's what it sounds like he wasn't sent to baptize well that clearly can't be what he's saying because he's just said that he baptized three other people in the corinthian church and as as i said we jesus commands his disciples to baptize in matthew 28 that's not what he's saying but there is definitely a comparison going on here isn't there a comparison between these two tasks of baptizing and preaching the gospel and Paul is simply saying that the main, the primary, the preeminent task that Jesus gave him and to all of us was to preach the gospel. Without the gospel, you don't even have baptism. Without the gospel, you don't have Christianity. And Paul goes on that he preached the gospel not with words of eloquent wisdom. And so, is Paul saying that we shouldn't use eloquent words? I mean, we heard before that Apollos was described as an eloquent man. Is, is this Paul having a shot at Apollos and saying, yeah, is, is he trying to undermine him? 
Well, I think you'd be hard-pressed to make that case. Uh, as I said already, it seems clear from this letter that there was no animosity between the two of them. You read it throughout the rest of this passage. You read it in 1 Corinthians 16 when Paul mentions Apollos. There seems to be no bad blood between them. No, that's not what Paul's getting at here. Remember the context. Remember how much these Corinthians loved to hear these fancy public speakers who could captivate crowds. They were able to debate and give speeches that would stir the soul and would convince the mind and move the heart. This is what Paul is getting at, which makes complete sense. It ties into everything that we've heard so far about how the Corinthians prized these brilliant orators. But Paul introduces the idea right here, and it's crucial for us as we consider what we're united on in the church, that the power of the gospel doesn't need to be dressed up. If you're unfamiliar with the gospel, it's what the Bible refers to as good news. And this news is all about Jesus. It's all about this God-man who was born of a virgin Mary, who lived a righteous life of perfect obedience that no person before him or since has ever been able to do. And he was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem so that people all over the world could hear this gospel and could turn from their sin in repentance and turn to him in faith. Because on the cross that Jesus was crucified on, he would take the sin of all who would put their faith in him so that they may be justified. The Bible says that the blood that Jesus shed on the cross was a propitiation, which means that his blood became the, paid the penalty that our sin deserves before God, so that we may, through faith, take on his righteousness and be able to stand before him made right through his blood. That is the message and the power of the cross. If you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Christ today, I appeal to you, do it today. The cross is at the heart of this message of the gospel which is precisely why Paul says he hasn't been called to preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. He's talking about the fact that words of eloquent wisdom should never be what we place our hope in. We should never be thinking, oh, if only I said that in a, in a more clever way. He's saying that if we trust in eloquent words, if we put our faith in smooth speech and silver tongues then we've put our trust in the wrong thing. The message of the cross is what is powerful. It needs no embellishing. I don't know about you, but that should be of a great comfort 
That should be significantly encouraging because it means that we might not be able to preach the gospel as well as Martin Lloyd-Jones did or, or do it with as much zeal as Paul Washer does or whoever, insert your favorite preacher's name here. But that doesn't matter because the cross and the message of the cross is what is powerful. The gospel doesn't need to be made more palatable. It doesn't need to be made more relevant. It doesn't need to be made as though it's, it's wiser than any other worldly wisdom you can find. And we definitely don't need to dress it up in academic clothes or in skinny jeans or in more inclusive language. The message of the cross itself is powerful. And we are sent out into the world to simply preach and proclaim it as it is. Will you believe it? Will you preach it? It's incredibly sad to me when I hear about people who have walked away from Christianity and gone to the, the Catholic or Orthodox churches because they want unity and they perceive that to be unity. It's so sad because while it's a, it's a good and godly desire, they've missed the fact that unity that God desires is not institutional unity. It's unity in Christ. The church is united in Him. Jesus is the church's one foundation. I pray that we would be agitators for unity. Will you join me in that prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we lament, we grieve over the disunity and division in your church. Heavenly Father, we know that you desire for your children, for your churches to be united in Christ. We grieve and we repent of when we have not sought that ourselves. When we have not sought unity, but rather have sought our own preferences. When we have not sought to unite with others as far as we possibly can. And we confess and we repent of when we try to unite on things that Remove the foundation of Christ and the gospel. Forgive us of that, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to be united in Christ as a local church here in Darwin, as churches in Darwin, as churches across the globe. We ask these things in 
the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.